0: You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit, of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So we come to this time in our gathering, and it, and I think it's important to gather during Advent. Uh, whether we, um, well, I think it's important to be together during this time. I was talking to a couple of members this week. And there's just some heavy things that are still going on in our lives, right? Like, just because the season of Advent comes or the Christmas season comes doesn't mean we don't carry burdens. And for many in our church, this is the first season without certain loved ones. COVID has come, things have happened. And once again, the season rolls around, and this season is a first for some, it's an ongoing reminder for others. And I told both of these folks as we were just kind of like lamenting these things together but still holding on to the hope of Advent, I said, you know, I need the candles. Like I need Advent and I need to light the candles. I need to sit in a room with God's people and I need to see this small flickering dancing flame that reminds me that even when hope seems small, as long as it still flickers, Christ is still present. Like Christ is here. And so hope Cannot be extinguished. And then if I have hope. Even if it's a flickering flame of hope. Then I know that if Christ has come. And is coming again. That peace. That peace is possible. And So we light the candle of peace. And we remember in the world of chaos. Even when our souls feel like chaos. But in the world of chaos. We see the flickering flame of peace. And we remember that peace is still possible. That, that human flourishing which is what peace is it's wholeness it's well-being it's not the absence of chaos it's wholeness and well-being in the midst of chaos we know it's still possible and so we need the flickering flame of peace to remind us that the prince of peace has come and is coming again and because the prince of peace who is the hope of the world has come and coming again joy is possible but not if we think it's just about happiness Not if joy becomes about a fleeting emotion of optimism. No, no, no. The joy that comes from Advent that we're called to remember is this deep kind of satisfaction in our soul. Because Christ has come and is coming again, even in a world where peace seems impossible, it's still possible. Even in a world where hopelessness seems to reign, hope is still present. And therefore, I know that because Christ has come and is coming again, that God's going to make all the things that are wrong with the world right when Christ comes again. Amen. And so I, so I find then that it's possible, that, that it's true. The fruit of the Spirit can actually be joy. Not the fruit of Fred, but the fruit of the Spirit. And then we come to the fourth Sunday of Advent and we remember as we get closer to the, white, to the bright candle that is the Christ candle, we remember that all of this comes because God so loved the world. That God so loved the world that he refused to give up on any of us. And that the light of the love of God flickers in a world where hopelessness threatens our hope. Where violence and fear and jealousies and hatreds threaten our peace. Where false allegiances and false promises threaten our joy. So I was reminded when we, the Liggins, lit the candle together um, at home where we, where we considered the last week where we would light the candle of joy. And I, remember, I was reminded that, that because we have hope, because we have hope, we have peace, because we know peace is possible and because peace is possible, and we know that it's possible because Christ is coming and coming again, we can have joy because of God's love. And But what I'm reminded of is that it goes the other way, back around. That because God has given us love, and that gives us great joy, we can work for the peace that we know is possible and be a hope to the world because the hope of Christ has come. You see how that works? So we have hope because we know peace is possible, and that brings us joy because of God's love. But because God loves us, we can love others out of our joy, work for the peace that's possible, and be hope for the world to point to the hope that has come. And that's the beauty of Advent, is that it calls us to a story that is bigger than ourselves, and we need that story. And so this week, as we light the candle of love, and we reflect back on the Advent candle and we get closer to Christmas Eve where we will light the candle in the middle, the the bright candle, the, the Christ candle, we remember, beloved, that these flames will not be extinguished. When the Advent season is over and we move into Epiphany, the whole season of Epiphany is about remembering that the lights that we lit continue to burn bright because the light of the world has come. So these candles may stop when the Advent season is over. But as you know now, these candles will be replaced by three Christ candles that will be placed in the table to remind us each week we gather that the light of Christ still burns. And by the light of Christ, we still see. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7-12. to 12. If you don't have any of that, I just invite you to receive the reading of the Scripture. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God, who knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us first and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God remains in us. And his love is made mature or complete in us. First John chapter 4. 7 12. God is love. That's what John says. Notice John did not say that God loves, even though he does. John did not say that God is like love. He did not say that God is understood as love. He said God is love. Notice that John didn't say that God is religion. He did not say that God is the right morality or the right beliefs. He did not even say that God is justice. He said God is love. Notice that John did not say God is freedom. He did not say that God is American democracy. He did not say that God is free market capitalism. He said God is love. Notice he did not say that love is God. He said God is love. And he could say it because he saw it when he walked with God incarnate, Jesus. See, God had to show us love. God could no longer send prophets and poets to tell us about it, attempting To express love to human beings by simply visiting humanity and saying, God is love, so go ahead and y'all need to love one another, just wouldn't cut it. Humanity has proven, we have proven, that we are generally afraid to do hard things. And so left to us, love would translate as sentimentality or romanticism. We We would make love easy to do. But God does something else. In the person of Jesus, God says, I am the embodiment of love. I am what love looks like. I will sit with the people you're told not to sit with. I'll eat with the people you're told not to eat with. Embrace the people you're told not to embrace. Welcome the people you are told not to welcome. I will love the people born in what you are told is the wrong skin from the wrong places, told from wrong nations. And I will love all of these people in practical ways, including you, because I am love. See, God is love. That's what John says. And the person of Jesus is God's stubborn act of refusal to let us go on living without love, condemning others, and even condemning ourselves. Jesus is God's stubborn act of refusal to give up on us. God entered into our suffering including our self-made suffering of violence and jealousies because that's what love does. Love is hard and messy, dirty and risky. It isn't love made easy. And so, beloved, when we light the candle of love during the Advent season, it's more than sentimentality. It's something far deeper and greater than that. And it is, if we think about the Christmas story beyond the pageantry... It is a love made messy and dirty and risky and hard. See, Matthew, in Matthew chapter 2, beginning verse 13, he wants us to see this love and his telling of the Advent story. Now, you won't see this part of the Advent story oftentimes portrayed during Christmas pageants. But see, he's the only one of the gospel writers, Matthew, to include this tragic side of the story. We come to Joseph, Mary, and Jesus just after the so-called wise men from the east have come, worshiped the Christ child, and left for their long journey home. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up. Take the child and his mother. Flee to Egypt. And stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, remember he was the king of the Jews, when he saw that he had been outwitted by the wise men, you know, because they're wise, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the male children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, And she refused to be consoled because they were no more. Now, I recognize that this isn't the text we oftentimes want during the Christmas season. Because the world is hard enough. But that's exactly why we need the text. Because sometimes the thickness of the darkness that cannot be explained away must be confronted with the light of Christmas. And the thicker the darkness, no matter how small the light, the brighter the light by which we see. So Herod, the king of Israel, feels threatened, right? And his whole life has been about two things, ambition and power. For decades, he ruled with a heavy hand, manipulating anyone who stood in the way of him and murdering anyone who threatened his power, including his own wife and son's. So now that he's old and dying, his last desperate move to retain power and to live into his ambition is to choose his own successor. So suddenly, some wealthy men from the east appear to Herod's court and announce that a new king of the Jews has been born. Clearly, they're not talking about Herod's sons. So he must do what people who love power do and eliminate the threat to his power. So at first, he tries to trick the men into leading them, leading them to his this so-called king, but, you know, they're, they're too wise to be tricked, right? So he takes extreme measures, and he orders, by way of political decree, by way of legislative decree, that every child within the vicinity of this so-called newborn king's birth that is around two years old must be killed. This despicable act of murderous infanticide could quite possibly fly under the radar of the local news media because who really cares about this small, no-name town called Bethlehem? Who, census tells us, population probably only included roughly two dozen children under the age of two? It's a horrible tragedy. And the only good news... In this story is that the young Jesus and his family make it out alive as they seek refuge in Egypt and live there as refugees, escaping this sinister government and legislative decree. See, God is love. And gave himself over to a world that within the first two years of his birth would force God to come into this world a refugee child and even grow up, according to Matthew chapter 8, grow up and live like a man made homeless, where Jesus said, Foxes have dens and birds have of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. See, in the beginning of the Advent story, in the despair of darkness, we see the power of, Of the God who is love. It's a love that is hard and messy. Dirty and risky. And in the beginning of the Advent story. We learn that love is about choosing what's right over what's easy. It's right for God to come to us. It's right for God to do this God's self. It's right for God to enter into a world of brokenness and violence. It's right for a God to come and rescue God's people. Because God is Love. That's what John says. Now, the Apostle Paul, who followed this God, believed John. He believed that John was right when he said God is love. Paul committed his life to this same kind of God who is love. And it was this same kind of love that always got Paul in trouble. It's this love that Paul possessed that led him to be stoned, beaten, arrested, disliked, marginalized, mistreated. And it was this kind of love that Paul believed to look most like the love that Jesus had in the world. It was the same kind of love that liberated and transformed Paul's life. Do you remember? See, Paul, before he made a decision to follow Jesus, he was charged by his extremist wing of a political and religious party to kill Christians in the name of his religion and politics. Paul's past life, don't miss this, Paul's past life would have earned him the present-day classification As an international or domestic terrorist, according to the FBI's code in chapter 113b, entitled Terrorism, under section 2331. Like, Paul believed that God's love could save the worst among us. So much so. That when Paul wrote his young apprentice, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1.15, he said this. He said, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Everybody say full acceptance. He said full acceptance. Not necessarily feeling it, but not even really believing You just accept it. This is a saying he said that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. And now we know why. See, the Apostle Paul believed that God, as love incarnate in Jesus, offers to the world a love powerful enough, powerful enough to change anyone and everything. He once wrote this in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, he said Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, that God's love will never fail. I think if Paul were here today, he'd want to write to us about this kind of love that never fails. After watching the network news, if he were to be so brave, they're listening to some social commentary and maybe sharing a few meals with us in our homes and checking out our nice church buildings and our flickering candles, Paul might write this. As for your faithfulness, it may fail. Your notions of religion may fail. Your morality may fail. Your generosity may fail. Your hospitality may fail. As for your comfortable way of life in Williamsburg, Virginia, it may fail. Governments may fail. National security may fail. The judicial process may fail. The economy may fail. But God's love never fails. Because God is love. See, if if God's love never fails, and if God is love, then we know there's no love greater to which we can hope receive. No man, woman, or child can give us that kind of love. John's words, God is love, reminds us that no world power can ever overtake the Father's promise. See, God is love reminds us that no impossibility is impossible for God. God is love reminds us that the White House cannot replace God's throne room And Capitol Hill has been overcome by Calvary's hill. God is love reminds us that no matter how unstable our society, y'all hear me on this now, right? Like no matter how unstable our society becomes, God is love reminds us that the light of Christ can guide our feet to the path of peace, where the joy of the Lord can be our strength, because God's love has come to us in the newborn king, and God's love never fails. See, Advent reminds us, beloved, that in Christ Jesus, God has entered into our suffering, embodied our sorrow, and enabled our salvation. Advent reminds us that God is love and will always be love. So, God is love. Everybody say, God is love. God is love, God is love so you can know that He loves you and me without caution or restriction. God is love so you can know that He loves you and me without boundaries or limits. God is love, so you can know that he loves you and me beyond our inadequacies or failures and beyond our feelings of worthiness and unworthiness. No matter who I am, where I've been, and what I've done, no matter what I have become, God always is love. See, both John and Paul also teach us, though, that if we are going to receive God's love, then it's got to look like something. See, we can't, y'all, we can't just light candles that remind us of the love of God. We can't just come and sing hymns about God's love. We can't just come to the table of Eucharist and remember the love that God has for us and it not change us. See, Paul and John both teach us that if we're to receive God's love, then we must learn to love like God. Because to love, listen, beloved, please, to love is to be most like God. Because God is love. So if we're going to take God's love seriously, and love like God, despite the messiness and scandal, we might find ourselves labeled as foolish by some, dangerous by others, and radical by most. It's what happened to Paul, to John. It's what happened to Jesus. And maybe this is why the apostle Paul taught us that the love of Christ, if you remember in 1 Corinthians, the love of Christ, is foolishness, to those who are spiritually bankrupt. Christ is foolishness to those who are spiritually bankrupt. And beloved, sadly, sometimes Christians are spiritually bankrupt. But it ought not to be that way with us. See, what we learn from the words, God is love, is that to receive this love is a summons to demonstrate this love to others. We receive this love and we hear it from Jesus that a forgiven community must become a forgiving community. A beloved community must learn to become a loving community. God as love teaches us that we have to rise above the party political fray and uncivil discourse of our day. God as love teaches us that we must learn to love even when it's hard, messy, or even risky, to love enemies, to welcome refugees and strangers. After all, Jesus, to was once a refugee, to love all people, people of every tongue and faith, Muslim, to Hindu, to people who struggle with faith or claim no faith at all because God is love. And just as God's love is a stubborn act of refusal to give up on us, a community's commitment to this kind of love becomes a stubborn act of refusal to give up on love. How we show love, beloved, tells others if we are really keeping Christ in Christmas. Just as God's love rescues and liberates us, those who have been rescued by God's love must join God in the rescue. Those who have been liberated by God's love must join God in the liberation. Those who have been reconciled to God by God's love must embrace the ministry of reconciliation. Those who have been restored by God's love must join God in restoring others. So we know as we sit here and we receive a reminder, nothing new, just a reminder, (coughs) that the love of God has been poured out for us. That must move us to embody that same love. So we learn to hold the hurting because God holds us when we hurt. We learn to defend the displaced because God defends the displaced. We learn to welcome the unwanted because God welcomes us. We learn to value the vulnerable because God values us. We learn to plead for the poor because God pleads for us in our poverty. We learn to support the sick because God supports us. We learn to watch over the widow because God watches over us. We learn to restore the rejected because God restored us when we were rejected. Beloved, in a society dominated by fear, indifference, and violence, this kind of love becomes a courageous act of defiance. In a society seduced by power, position, and privilege, this kind of love becomes a courageous act of resistance. In a society determined to push aside the weak, Marginalize the vulnerable and exclude the stranger. This kind of love becomes a courageous act of protest. Because God is love. And love must be our witness. Because we are a people who know the love of God. Because you and I are God's chosen what? Beloved. We are his royal, what? Priesthood. We are citizens of his holy, what? Nation. We are a people for his, what? Possession. Now, to what end? To proclaim the mighty deeds of the one who called us out of this darkness and into his marvelous light. Dear friends, let us love one another. John says, because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So, dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God remains in us, and God's love is made complete, mature in us. The words of John, 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 12, the word of God, thanks be to God.